So, are you one of the people who think St. Paul, founder of churches, author of much of the New Testament, big man in the Christian stratosphere, had epilepsy? I hadn't actually heard the epilepsy theory myself until I started researching this platform. Perhaps not surprisingly, it was not a major feature of my Methodist seminary's course on early Christian figures. Of course, the idea that religious figures, particularly those who experienced visions or dramatic conversion experiences like Paul did, having some kind of brain disorder is not a new one to me. There's a whole other platform, and maybe an interesting one, in the ways that we can interpret our own experiences that are not quite in line with reality, whether they are mystical or diagnosable or both. But it turns out that the Paul epilepsy theory is not so much about whether or not he was crazy in some way. His latter work shows definitively, I think, that he not only had his wits about him, but was an adept organizational development consultant for the early Christian movement. The Paul epilepsy piece is really about how our brains experience religion, about which part of our brains is connected to the religious experience. As it turns out, Paul's conversion experience, which, as reported in the New Testament book of Acts, included a flash of light, a disembodied voice, a falling out, and temporary blindness sounds quite similar to a temporal lobe seizure. And the temporal lobe, which is located, I think, sort of in the midsection of the brain, with functions including perception, language, and long-term memory, is one of the places that seems to be related to religious experience. In fact, individuals with temporal lobe epilepsy, at least in one study, seem to be uniquely primed for religious experience, experiencing a particular kind of heightened brain activity when hearing religious words, while the rest of us, the control group in that study, only get that particular kind of brain activity when hearing erotic words. Now, possibly, this argues for more platforms like the one I gave in February on ethical sex, since apparently that's what will give those of us without temporal lobe disturbances the religious feeling we might crave. <laughs> of course, that temporal lobe study was just one of many, actually one of increasingly many studies in a relatively new field called neurotheology, looking essentially at the ways that religious experience affects our brains, and the rest of us, for that matter. You have probably seen the headlines or read the articles about many of these new neurotheological studies. Some of the most famous center around meditation and prayer and the effect on our brains over the long term of engaging in those practices. Dr. Andrew Newberg, who actually wrote a book called Principles of Neurotheology, has, in the words of NPR, scanned the brains of praying nuns, chanting Sikhs, and meditating Buddhists. In one of his landmark studies, he expanded our understanding of what happens during religious experience, noting that not only was there activity in the temporal lobe, as we talked about with Paul, but also a decrease in activity in the parietal lobe. That's the part of the brain that helps us to know where our bodies are in space, in three-dimensional space. And what Dr. Newberg found was that both the meditating monks and the praying nuns experienced, through their very different practices, a sense of being one with the world, of losing their own sense of space, that decrease in the parietal lobe. That is, their brains were changed in such a way that they actually felt a sense of transcendence. There are literally dozens of these studies, 
One of them was a collaboration of researchers from the University of Sydney, Australia, and the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. As a side note, I do sometimes wonder whether these international collaborations are based on a complicated diagram of which researcher wants to vacation where. <laughs> Australia, Norway, it's a nice trade. Anyway, these, I'm sure, very dedicated and non-vacationing researchers fitted meditators with helmets that measured their brain activity both while they meditated and while they just rested. They found that meditating was unique from resting and from sleep in terms of the brain waves it produced, with theta waves indicating relaxed attention, alpha waves showing wakeful rest, and very few delta or beta waves, which would suggest that meditating gives your brain a break from the kind of constant problem solving we often engage in. Some of the most interesting work, though, looks at the effect of meditation over the long term rather than in one short session. Cindia Banu, writing for the New York Times Wellness blog, cited studies showing that, quote, those who meditated for about 30 minutes a day for eight weeks had measurable changes in gray matter density in parts of the brain associated with memory, sense of self, empathy, and stress, end quote. This study found an increase in gray matter in the brain, one of the first indications that meditation actually changes your brain's structure, that it takes advantage of the brain's plasticity to make you better. Or anyway, that is what the author concluded. Her husband had just made a commitment to meditate for two hours a day, which she acknowledged was kind of a pain in terms of their household routine, but which she was willing to support since she figured a more empathic husband with a better memory was worth it. Of course, meditation isn't the only aspect of a religious life, but it does seem that our brains, indeed our whole selves, may be uniquely suited for religious feeling, even for religious belief. That's the argument of Jesse Baring of Queen's University in Belfast, the author of The Belief Instinct. He suggests that we as humans have evolved not only to engage in religion for its social aspects, but really to experience supernatural belief. An atheist himself, Dr. Baring nonetheless has found that he experiences moments of magical thinking or superstition, and he's conducted experiments showing that most other people do too. Bering locates our religious experience, or our religious assumptions, he might say, in our theory of mind, one of the aspects of humanity that sets us apart relatively clearly from other animals. Theory of mind is what helps us to see other perspectives, to imagine each of us as having a mind, as thinking independently and experiencing independently. Essentially, Bering feels that an overactive theory of mind has developed in humans, to create a belief in an outside mind, one that has a kind of supreme intelligence. Now, Dr. Baring writes from the perspective that we can find the source of religion in our brains and in the evolution of our species, and from the perspective that this source is the totality of religious experience. He's a materialist, believing that there's nothing outside the reality that we see around us, that any religious or mystical experience we have is found in our wiring not in a legitimate experience itself. But neurotheology doesn't necessarily negate the possibility of an experience actually existing. In fact, it doesn't negate any possibilities at all, as far as I can see. Just because our brain waves respond in a certain way to mystical experiences doesn't mean they aren't real. 
After all, my brain responds in a certain way to my child and my husband, too. My sense is that they exist in a real way. Dr. Newberg, the one who wrote Principles of Neurotheology, believes that the field can and must maintain an openness. He writes in that book, quote, it is important to infuse throughout the principles of neurotheology the notion that neurotheology requires an openness to both the scientific as well as the spiritual perspectives. It is also important to preserve the essential elements of both perspectives. In short, for neurotheology to be successful, science must be kept rigorous and religion must be kept religious. What I found was that writers in this field tended to find in the data whatever it was they were hoping to find. One book, The Spiritual Brain, A Neuroscientist's Case for the Existence of the Soul, by Mario Beauregard and Denise O'Leary, comes down firmly on the side of the actual existence of some kind of transcendent reality, in part because of a transcendent experience that Dr. Beauregard had as a young man. The science is just as valid. Scans of the brains of Carmelite nuns while they are having what they consider mystical experiences of union with the divine. And the brain scans show the same kind of increased waves in some places and decreased waves in others, all of which would indicate objectively that the nuns' brains are responding in the way they subjectively state they are feeling. Basically, Dr. Beauregard is able to measure an experience of transcendence whether there's really something outside of our usually perceived reality to connect with transcendently is entirely a matter of faith. I like the fact that neurotheology, or neuroscience more broadly, can't ult answer ultimate questions about reality. Personally, I enjoy unanswerable questions, much more interesting for us to come up with our own answers. And I want to acknowledge that for many of you, the answers to those ultimate questions feel not only clear, but provable. What I love about this community is that it is a place for folks who feel sure and for folks who don't. So I'm not really looking to either religion or science to provide those answers. But I am interested in the effects of the practice, in the benefits. In other words, I would like to have my brain changed too. And of course, brain waves aren't the only measure of religion being good for you. Other studies have found that those who are active in a religious community live longer and experience fewer major health problems at the end of their lives. One study found a seven-year difference in those who attended religious services regularly and those who didn't in terms of lifespan. Seven years sounds good to me. I think I would enjoy having that extra time. Another study looked at intentional communities groups of people who choose to live together based on a series of shared values and hopes. The religious ones were much more likely to stay together than the secular ones over time because, so the study's authors theorized, the values that bound them together were stronger. So the question this all leaves me with is how our religion, how our community here at West is giving us these benefits. We are a religion based on ethics, and specifically ethics found in human relationship. To a certain extent, we pride ourselves on being different from traditional religions, particularly those that require or even offer belief systems. Rather than basing our work on shared belief, we find our unity in how we act in the world. As the founder of Ethical Culture said, diversity in creed, unanimity in deed. 
We are much more a deed people than a creed people. But how is that helping my brain? Am I reaping all those benefits of traditional religion? And by traditional, I include not just Judaism or Christianity, but also Buddhism, frequently non-theistic, but with a strong basis in meditation and a belief in a series of tenets, including transcendent unity with the universe. How do we compare? Because, you know, I spend a lot of time in this community, and I want to have a really good-looking brain to show for it. I don't think that's too much to ask. I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago when I went on retreat with a group of Unitarian Universalist ministers. We were together for three days doing some reconnecting and having a little fun, but mostly thinking about some of the big questions that all religious leaders ask. Questions about the meaning of our work and life, the source of our call. Except that what came up over and over again was that in the daily grind of religious leadership, in the administration and the budgeting and the office work, it's easy to forget what it is we're doing here. As one colleague put it particularly poignantly, I thought, most of the time I feel as though I'm just running a poorly funded nonprofit. Now, if that's how some of the ministers are feeling, <laughs> I can only imagine it is how some of you are feeling too. And I guess what I want to say today, for our sake, for our brain's sake, is that this cannot be all that we are. There is nothing wrong with poorly funded nonprofits, of course. I have supported plenty, volunteered, and worked at some, too. But there is something more about being part of a religious community, an ethical community. We should be a place that is about transformation of our brainwaves, of our relationships, and of our lives. It's popular with clergy to say that we are in the business of transformation. And I think it's one of those phrases that doesn't always translate easily, that can sort of devolve into jargon or, as one West member likes to call it, minister speak. But I see transformation around me here in individual lives and in our community. I see it in the child who stands up to the bully at school who stands with the bullied because that's what she learned to do in our Sunday school. I see it in the new member who tells me that she came here because she'd lost faith in people and that she rediscovered it here. I see it in the longtime member who shares how his heart has changed over his time here, how he's reoriented his values and turned toward people instead of just toward work. I see it in the person who tells me about their experience of serving dinner at Luther Place Shelter, or in the words of our teen group back from New Orleans, or in the pride of our protesters newly arrested for civil disobedience in defense of DC voting rights. But having these moments be truly transformative, experiencing them as transformative, depends on how we approach our work here. It means seeing what we do, what we are trying to do, as having the power to transform us. And it means opening ourselves up to that transformation. Sometimes it's that last piece that's the hardest. I know I resist the idea of being changed. This might explain why I have to recommit to meditating every few months 
rather than actually doing it in the in-between. And if I'm really being honest, sometimes I don't want to experience more empathy. Sometimes I don't want to notice more fully that the world is radically connected, that I'm responsible for other people. Contemplating change is scary, and never more so than when it is we who are changing. Now, some of this work of transformation is our own to do. I mentioned that every few months I have to commit myself to meditating. Writing platforms for which I research the many physical and emotional benefits of meditating tends to spur those commitments along. Many of you have shared with me your own hopes to have more silence in your lives, to develop practices of meditation that you actually can maintain. It's hard to maintain those practices. I have, of course, a full-time job and a three-year-old, and my understanding is that I will not have more time when my second child comes along. <laughs> but I know how important those practices are to my ability to manage what life throws at me. So I'm publicly inviting you today, although I may regret it later, to check in with me about how my own practice is going and to share with me about your own. And some of this work we can do together. In March and April, some of us actually tried meditating together, gathering in the library on Sunday mornings before platform to spend 15 minutes, not two hours, but that's more than zero, in silence. We didn't continue it through May, but I would love to hear from you if you'd be interested in trying something like that yourself. How about our values? How about the things that can make us more like the religious intentional communities? the ones that stayed together than like the secular communities, the ones that drifted apart? And how is our coming together getting us those extra seven years? It does come back for me to the idea of transformation. That's what the MRIs are really studying and seeing in people's brains. Transformation of gray matter, change in the waves being produced in those amazing biological machines up there. And I would argue that transformation is what leads to the other health benefits, too, what leads to the religious communities staying together longer. People are learning, changing, in their ability to empathize with each other, in their ability to see the group as something more than just a collection of people. And transformation is certainly what happens in moments of transcendence. Some of you have heard me tell my own story of religious vision, if it can be called that when it happens in a Starbucks. It's the only one I've had so far, so it'll have to do, and it's pretty prosaic as these things go. But in other ways, it's not so far from what the Carmelite nuns experienced in Dr. Beauregard's study. No one was doing an MRI at the time, but I bet there were some good brain waves. Really, it was just a moment of realization, a few minutes sipping my latte, when I looked around at my fellow Starbucks patrons and realized that each one of us was important and precious, that each one of us was connected to the other in ways that had nothing to do with who was next in line. I didn't speak to any of them, and I don't remember their faces, but that is just the point. My realization was about being part of the human family, <clears throat> a family of billions of people, but one where each person should be treasured. I guess it was the mystical version of believing in the inherent worth of every person, 
or at least that that's what it felt like. And it was transformative. I remember that moment now a number of years ago vividly. It came out of thinking that I'd been doing at seminary on my own, but it wasn't about thinking. It was about feeling, about noticing that my heart was open to a realization that I might have been able to articulate before, but which I hadn't experienced so deeply. That moment mattered to me. It matters to my life now and how I try to live it. And I would say that it's a moment that doesn't depend in any way on an external reality. It was about relationship, about who each one of us is, and how we are connected to and responsible for each other. If we believe that transformation is not only possible, but welcome, whether it's scientific studies or our own experiences that lead us to that conclusion, I think we can come to a new level of understanding in our life together. As many of you know, Wes has some difficult decisions ahead as we navigate our budget for the years to come. I do hope you'll come to the membership meeting to be part of the conversation about that. But even more, I hope that we'll remember that above all, we are in the business of transformation. That lives are changed here, that the brain's plasticity can be stretched here. That our belief in inherent worth is more than just an idea, but can lead to true moments of transcendence, experiences of unity with the world. We may have all the same problems as a poorly funded nonprofit, but we offer something more. If you haven't yet found that among us, come talk to me. Let's see what we can create together that feels transformative for you. I agree with Dr. Baring, Dr. Beauregard, and Dr. Newberg that the mind is uniquely wired for the religious experience. Dr. Baring would say that the experience itself is all in our mind, a byproduct of evolution, and that we'll feel better when we just admit it. Dr. Beauregard would say there's definitely a transcendent reality out there and we'll be happier when we acknowledge it. Dr. Newberg would say we have to be open to both. And I say that, frankly, I don't really care if there is or there isn't. What I care about is how I act, how we act as a community, how we act in the larger world out there. I don't really care whether Paul had an epileptic episode or a religious vision. He certainly had an experience, one that transformed his life and led to the creation of the very first Christian communities, communities that, by many accounts, took care of each other, loved each other, ministered to the poor. Say what you will about what happened after Paul when Christianity became the religion not of the oppressed but of the empire. Those first churches that Paul nourished after his experience had some good things going for them. We, too, have some good things going for us. We are a community where people report true transformation, where their lives look different after time spent with us. If I had an MRI machine in my office, which I don't, I would invite us all to lie down each year and see if our brains look different. 
Instead, we have to measure how we are together, how we speak to each other when things get difficult, how we grow our ability to see another's point of view, how we look at those who are different than we are and see a member of the human family, how we feel the impulse to act for justice not because of a should somewhere out there, but because of a want, a desire to acknowledge our connection to each other. My brain will probably change over a lifetime, no matter what I do. I am hoping that because of my choices, because of how I choose to spend my time and what I choose to value and when I choose to be silent and simply feel, that because of all that, my brain will change for the better. <laughs>